Here's a word that you don't hear very often, verisimilitude. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It's not the sort of word that's easily woven into a brief soundbite or a meme or a tweet, but it's very relevant to the wood ape or sasquatch phenomenon. Verisimilitude is defined as having the appearance of being true or real. As such, it's patently different from empirical truth, objective reality, or fact. The primary aim of scientific inquiry itself is, indeed, empirical truth. The path taken while pursuing that aim likely meanders through the landscape of credible verisimilitude, but that's not the final destination. For the well-informed researcher of the Sasquatch phenomenon, the subject itself is richly complex and smacks with verisimilitude. The most credible testimonial reports of observations and encounters reveal biological and ecological trends and norms that are consistent with those in the extant apes. Moreover, the historical context from whence these reports emerge often precede or anticipate our discovery or confirmation of those trends within the known apes. The most relevant analyses of the best physical evidence also suggest a biological North American ape in that they conform to characteristics of both extant and extinct apes and again precede many of the discoveries that illuminate the conformities and consistencies. A thorough review of the best testimonial and physical evidence reveals at least a strong appearance of a biological reality at the core of the Sasquatch phenomenon. That's been the overarching argument made by Sasquatch proponents for decades now. In that regard, the Sasquatch subject has, in my estimation, reached peak credible verisimilitude. In fact, I'd say it's occupied this position of peak credible verisimilitude for so long that it's actually begun to erode and wither with the stagnation of progress along that aforementioned path towards empirical truth. Outlandish claims, ridiculous interpretations, and outright lies and fabrications have all contributed to this erosion and will continue to do so for as long as this subject remains sedentary in the liminal space between appearing valid and being empirically validated. There's a gap, a seemingly massive gulf between credible verisimilitude and truth. This is the proverbial gap between real or not real. The gap that prompts all contenders with the Sasquatch to ask the question as to whether or not the Sasquatch exists. By now, it should be painfully obvious to Sasquatch proponents that the only thing that could or would bridge this gap is an individual representative of the species, i.e. a specimen. You see, critics, skeptics, and cynics have known and accepted this fact for a very long time, but for some reason proponents often have the proclivity to ignore or deny that fact, opting instead to collect the same sorts of evidence that have been collected in abundance for 60 years in hopes that credible verisimilitude will eventually just become a proxy for empirical truth. That hasn't happened yet, and it probably never will. Now, a specimen can take many forms. It could be a living individual, captured and brought in to be observed and documented by scientific, academic, or governmental institutions. It could be the partial remains of a long-deceased individual, some diagnostic portion that could serve as the type for the species that leads to their recognition. Or it could be a specimen that's collected, that is, to obtain an entire individual representative by means that would allow for the retrieval of the complete specimen for quantitative study and analysis long into the future. All of these options have been used to list and recognize animal species in the past, and therefore, if the wood ape exists, all of those options are available to those who seek to bridge this gap now. These are all very difficult options to pursue for various reasons. 
Given that the primary aim of the NAWAC is to ultimately establish the existence of an extant North American ape species, we've considered all of these options, eventually settling on the method of collecting a specimen by dispatching a living individual so that its remains can be studied indefinitely. For as long as the organization has adopted that approach and that stance publicly, we've received numerous inquiries from people who encourage us to consider the alternative options to specimen collection. Given that we have considered these alternatives in great depth, we wanted to illuminate those considerations for our listenership here on this podcast. I'm Matt Pruitt of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and in this episode, we'll be hearing from qualified members of the NAWAC regarding these alternative paths to discovery. We'll discuss the likelihood of finding the remains of a naturally deceased individual, the processes that lead to the rarity of such remains, and we'll discuss the problems posed by attempting to capture a living individual wood ape, something that we get asked about a lot more than you might think. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Welcome to this episode of Apes Among Us. Hope everyone's had a wonderful and safe holiday season despite a troublesome year, to say the least. Obviously, no one's year has gone according to plan, so we really appreciate the patience here between episodes. We typically aim for a release schedule of about one episode per month, and hopefully by uh, 2021 we can get back to that. But I've got my co-host Daryl Collier here on the line, and uh, Daryl and I have some updates about not only future episodes, but uh, about this year's summer operation. And so, we officially concluded the summer operation in October, and Daryl, how do you how do you think the operation went as a whole? Well, as you just mentioned, Matt, uh, it was not without uh, some challenges for sure, given the nature of, of 2020. There were uh, a lot of precautions that we had to take uh, with the teams that were out there. We wanted to make sure that everyone stayed healthy, did not contract any illnesses. We put in place uh, some protocols to, to guard against those things, and uh, so we had challenges from that aspect. And, and then, of course, when you do any sort of prolonged field work, you, you, you have the normal challenges that go along with that. The, norm, the ones that, we're no, that we normally see when we do a field work out in the summer at Area X. And so um, given those things, I think, I think the year was a good year. Um, had some things happen, uh, particularly, uh, Matt, when you and I were out there on a team, we had made some interesting observations all in all, I think it was a good learning year for us. Oh, I agree. You know, I think when we first set out to do this, you know, we, we started planning this obviously at the end of 2019 and, and making plans to launch in the summer. So the original idea was to have these three large phases punctuated by brief uh, gaps where we would be leave the valley unoccupied. And then, you know, when the pandemic kind of really set in and lockdowns began in March, we canceled the first phase and removed those gaps and tried to fill all those gaps. And, you know, it's so undoubtedly there were still going to be gaps because, you know, a lot of members, as I'm sure a lot of listeners, you know, have been affected by this pandemic. And so we had people with who were affected, you know, personally or had family members or loved ones affected, uh, their employment or jobs were affected. But surprisingly enough, even with those gaps, by the end of the operation, when I look back at it, we had a total of 26 members that participated that filled a total of 70 days. 
Now, contrasting that to last year, last year we had 28 members over 70 days. So all in all, you know, it was fairly competitive in terms of even under these bizarre and troubling circumstances, we actually still were able to to pull off about 10 weeks, although not consecutively. I spent two weeks down there uh, myself during the operation, and certainly the one with you was the most uh, exciting of those two. It was a, a really interesting week, and hopefully we can do a deep dive on that when we do a future episode that will be a recap of the summer operation. Uh, the second week was myself and uh, one of the new members, a gentleman named Scott Wittemeyer, and it was just the two of us. And we basically experienced the most rain that I've ever experienced probably anywhere. <laughs> Almost got trapped down there due to some downed trees across the road. And I have to give a huge thanks to our member and my good friend Joel Thomas for having the foresight to loan us his chainsaw. Because if it weren't for that, we'd still be we'd be living out our days down there right now uh, still. So, But all in all, it was a, a, a good operation, I think. And Another update, we just collected the cards from the camera array that we call Hadrian's Wall, if you've listened to the last episode. So there's a lot of data to go through. I think it was roughly 14,000 images and about 2,500 videos somewhere in that neighborhood. So we're going through all of that with a fine-tooth comb. So there will be a Hadrian's Wall Part 2 episode coming up in the future. Uh, So definitely stay tuned for that as well. So, Daryl, obviously, you've been a part of this organization from nearly the very beginning, even back when it was, you know, the Texas Bigfoot Research Conservancy. And so I know you've done a lot of interfacing with people who follow the group or who follow the Bigfoot subject in in general. Uh, You know, you've a longtime member of the board of directors and you administer a lot of the public outreach uh, in terms of giving presentations and hosting conferences. And so how many times do you think you've been asked in all these years uh, these questions related to trying to prove that these animals exist by some means other than specimen collection, like looking for bones or like capturing a live individual or something like that. It's always, it's always been a little entertaining to me. Um, when, uh, when I'm approached by someone who comes to me with a, with an expression on their face that betrays their thoughts that what they're about to ask me is, is, is a question that is, that that no one has ever posed before. Invariably, it's a question I've heard multiple times before, usually dozens of times before, <laughs> and usually I've provided an answer to it in some facet, probably uh, at least multiple times, maybe dozens of times before. I can't remember the last time anybody ever asked a question about the way to go about this whole endeavor that anyone ever asked a question that I had not heard since the very early days of when I got into this. You know, we get the same questions over and over and over again. People ask them in different ways, but they're, but they're inevitably the same question. Uh, have you thought of this? Have you done this? Have you thought of this? It's very, very, very rare that we get any sort of original question or line of thinking. Um, that's not to say that we know everything. That's not what I'm saying here, but it's just um, for someone who's, who's, who's a novice into this or someone who has not been involved in it very long, I guess a lot of all those questions are original. They're new to them. But if you've been doing this for any length of time and you've been doing it as much as some of us have, then there's not going to be a whole lot that you haven't heard before. And that's kind of the way it is when we get asked these these kinds of questions about alternative, uh, the alternative means by which a wood ape can be recognized as a legitimate species. 
Certainly. And we get those inquiries so very often through social media outlets and then through the, you know, the contact form on the website. And that's kind of what had prompted this, the creation of this episode was we hear a lot of the same answers that have been offered by Wood Ape or Sasquatch proponents over the last several decades, because the problems and the obstacles and the hurdles and the difficulties haven't changed. And so the answers are typically the same. And so, you know, I find myself regurgitating some of those things very often because I didn't have direct experience with them. Uh, but during the, the conversations around these constant questions, you know, we're having conversations with members like Travis Lawrence and Paul Bowman, who, you know, have direct experience with live animal sedation or tranquilization or quote unquote capture. They have experience with trying to recover bones or preserved remains of naturally deceased animals or individuals. And so it just seemed like, well, we should get these people to to talk about some of their personal experiences and, and professional experiences in this capacity so that we have qualified experts in these particular realms can address these things with the audience for uh, for any future inquiries. And that way, when those emails come in in the future, we can just direct them to this episode. Because it is, I mean, what I was trying to touch upon in the cold open here, I think you could make the case that the subject has reached this point of, you know, like I said in the introduction, peak credible verisimilitude, that being having the appearance of being legitimate. So for someone who's well-informed and who contends with all the information and is familiar with all of the relevant disciplines that are necessary to interpret the information, it's kind of peaked in terms of having the appearance of reality. And it's probably peaked decades ago, to be honest, because there haven't been a whole lot of new findings or contributions to that that canon of data, let's say. And so I think for a lot of people, that's like a place of arrival of, okay, well, this is clearly legitimate. It's clearly real. And so that's kind of where their path or their journey ends. But obviously the NAWC is not interested in staying in that space. We're interested in moving forward. And so there is this gap between this appearance of legitimacy and actually bringing it into the light of empirical truth or objective reality. And that requires a specimen. And so like we discuss, there's many ways to getting a specimen, but we've arrived at this position that as difficult as it is, is actually the simplest of all available paths. And so that's what we're going to be exploring here in this episode. So for this first segment that you're going to hear, you're going to hear Daryl and I having a conversation with NAWAC Board of Directors member and professional anthropologist and archaeologist Paul Bowman. We're going to talk a little bit about remains, the recovery of things like bones, and taphonomy, or the placement of those bones in the environment, and what processes lead to the preservation of them. So please enjoy this next segment. There's no shortage of species that have been discovered by virtue of a single tooth or a single bone that constitutes the holotype or the type specimen of a species. It's pretty rare for extant species, but obviously the, the entire fossil record uh, is replete with examples of that. And so I'm sure a lot of people think that the simplest way to prove that the Sasquatch or the wood ape actually exists would be to find the remains of a deceased individual, a tooth, a bone, or something like that. And so it comes up very often in discussions from people who might have concerns about you know, the actions or the efforts to collect a specimen, i.e. to kill one, to say, well, 
why is it that you guys don't just look for bones as if, you know, there's this kind of implicit assumption there that we're just ignoring that step or that we're not at all trying that or that we haven't thought about it. But we do have one of our board of directors members, Paul Bowman on the line. Paul is an archaeologist by profession, but Paul is also an academic who studied anthropology. And Paul, your specialty is actually in animal bones, correct? Uh, that's correct. Faunal analysis, that's kind of my forte, um, kill sites and um, animal bone archaeology, how they how they are um, when they turn up in, a, in an archaeological assemblage. That's kind of my my specialty. And you've been, you know, going down to Area X with Daryl here. I mean, how long have you guys been down there together? At least 16, 17 years? The very first time in 2006, I was right on his heels and I made it a point. I'm like, I'm not going to I'm not going to let this guy, you know, lose me. <laughs> so July of 2006, to be exact. That's right. I've been chewing dirt with Daryl um, ever since then. So, And so to, to hit you guys with the questions that we get hit very often through the website and through social media, why haven't you guys ever looked for bones? We have. That's just it. I mean, we're, we're looking for sign. We're looking for lots of things, you know, it's a, it's a fair question. You know, it really is. Um, but I think, I think it underscores how a lot of the general public has uh, a, pretty much a misunderstanding of how the real world works, you know, in nature. And it's just, the short answer is it's not that simple. And I'm not trying to be hard on the audience that sends in those questions because they are valid questions. And, you know, that's along the line of questioning that, that has been leveled at Sasquatch proponents for 60 years is where are the bones? But I, I do think sometimes that there's this assumption that because we are so vocal uh, about our singular mission, that we're, doing that to the neglect or ignoring these these other potential avenues to discovery, which is just simply not the case. So I thought we could talk a little bit about, Paul, your background and your, your studying and that and how that kind of primes you. I mean, you, you're already looking at the natural world through that lens to look for those sort of things, even as you're engaged in other activities there in Area X. And I mean, is I guess for starters, is the Washita's especially the parts that have that amount of rainfall that constitute like an inland rainforest. Is that even the kind of place that you would find a bone likely of an individual that has died within the last five, 10 years? I'm always, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, I, I'm always kind of doing my job and I'm always looking down on the ground, looking for, uh, for stone tools and flakes and bones and things of that nature. Um, it's just, it's just what I do. It's kind of ingrained in me, so I can't help it. Um, it's unfortunate because I, I probably should be look be looking up more. I might actually see something, but uh, the short answer um, to your question is not really. Um, you know, there is a plethora of archaeological sites um, in southeast Oklahoma, um, but in the Washtas in particular, it's not so much that they're few and far between. They're just they're hard to find. There's not a lot of soil, uh, so there's you know you don't have a lot of deposition. You've got a lot of stuff that's going to be on the surface. And that stuff gets covered up in, in pine needles and duff and, and gets washed downstream. So not really. <laughs> you just, it's just not the kind of – and it is the, it's got the highest amount of rainfall uh, in the state easily. And um, the soils are rather acidic, um, which is something I'm going to get into here in a minute. But um, it's just not conducive to, uh, to preserving bone. Even in looking at analogous animals like black bears, which are also large omnivores – and there are certainly black bears in Area X. You've both seen them there multiple times. You've gotten hundreds of photos of them on your game cameras and, uh, you know, various other surveillance methods down there. So, Daryl, in all your years of spending time, boots on the ground there, eyes wide open, peeled, 
How many bare bones or bare skulls have you found and identified? Zero. And that's certainly not for lack of looking. No, absolutely not. Uh, you said we have a singular mission, which technically is true. Uh, but I, I, I think um, in, in the strictest definition, it's actually not true. We, we have a primary mission, which is to collect a specimen. But we have a whole host of ancillary objectives. And uh, included in those is the task of searching for sign, which includes bones. And so every time we go out, every time we go out, we, we scour for any sort of sign that we can find that's going to provide for us a representation of the target species, whether that's bones, whether that's tracks, scats, hair, nesting, or dens, you name it. We are always looking for sign. And uh, I, it's, it's actually quite rare to find any sort of bones in a wilderness setting. I'm I'm trying to remember ever finding any sort of significant group of bones. And I I never have. And I can't remember anyone on any of my teams. And those those teams number number in the high dozens. I can't even remember in the in the after action reports from all of the teams, uh, anyone having documented a significant find of bones. I think Paul's had a call out to all of us for quite a long time that, you know, we should be collecting any bones that we find and assembling those either in camp or back at the KBRS for further review. And and Paul, how many have we delivered to you thus far? Well, not, not many. And it's become quite comical. In fact, I can hear a collective eye roll every time I mention it on our private forums. You know, if you see a bone, pick it up. If it's a deer bone, you think it's a deer bone. So what? Pick it up. I like bones. I'll take them home with me if it's just a, another, you know, deer tibia or whatever. But um, it's my contention that a lot of people, they see a bone, they really have no idea what they're looking at. And so they just assume, oh, it's probably a deer because there's lots of deer here and deer die and, you know, leave their carcasses around. And I firmly believe that. And I think it's it, it behooves us to inspect everything we see like that. And a few people have. There is that small Ziploc bag of some bones there at our base camp. Our base camp we call Camp David. At at Camp David, there is a small Ziploc bag of a few bones. Uh, And it's just a few, you know. (laughs) I I wouldn't even say it's more than 10 or 15 bones. And they're little, small, little fragments. But let me say, that that, that's not to say that we don't, that, that we're not looking because we are. It's just we have to have a proper sense of perspective about it. Uh, we, we, we need to have a dose of reality about the odds of finding that body. And I think they're extremely, extremely low. I think one of the big contributing factors to those low odds, and I'm sure Paul could speak to this more than I could with your, your background and, and education, but you know, large animals tend to have longer lives and primates already have long lives, especially the great apes. And so if we're talking about something that could potentially live, let's, let's say 40 years, let's say maybe 50 to 60 years. What are the odds that one has died in that Valley in the last five years or in the last 10 years, or maybe even in the last 15 years, I think the odds are fairly low that the thing that we're looking for, uh, i.e. a tooth or a bone is even in that valley right now to be found and discovered because these individuals are not dropping dead every winter, or at least that would be the assumption. They're rare. They have long lives. Therefore, birth and death would be very rare events for you know any given set of individuals, especially in a, in a geographic area. Like you said, they're rare. So compounding that would be their, their numbers, right? I mean, we don't know how many are in that valley, but I think we all have a pretty good idea that it's not very many 
And so, and, and so you've got these animals living to 30 to 50 years old, like you just said. Yeah, that, com- that compounds it. Just the fact that may- may- maybe there's 10, maybe there's 12, maybe there's 15, maybe there's six. Furthermore, if, if you compound our, our TAG-7 data and what we need to be the home range, vast, vast area. The fact that they die, you know, what are the odds they're going to die just up the road 500 yards from our camp? It could be two ridge lines and six or seven or eight miles away, you know, and uh, it's just you, the odds are just they're growing very slim at this point. If, in fact, we tagged one, our tracking data show that that individual traversed some extremely difficult inhibitive terrain as far as humans are concerned. It, it, it would be it would be extremely laborious for us to to have followed that individual, whatever it was, for the sake of argument, it, whatever it was, it would have been extremely difficult for, for us to have followed it on foot. It's just not likely, you know, and then and the fact that it had that such a vast amount of territory within which to die, it's, you know, and then, and who knows what happens after they die from a, from a troop standpoint and what the, what its relatives will do. So what if they eat it? You know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of variables that you can throw into this. Macaques and, and um, I want to say howler monkeys. There's been documentation of of other primates basically doing just that. They they at some point go from family member to resource, so it's highly possible. It's not. It's definitely not outside the realm of possibility. And so when people say, "Well, where are the bones?" Well, you're talking about an extremely rare, presumably a stream, an extremely rare species. Uh, an extremely elusive species, an extremely agile species that's able to cover vast amounts of, of terrain very quickly in short amounts of time, an extremely intelligent species that prefer habitat that is not inhabited by humans. So it resides in remote areas to begin with. And so now you're expecting humans to find bones of that, that particular species Given all those attributes of that species, it's just it's it's a I don't know, it's it's almost an impossibility. Well, one of the best case studies would be the the lineage of the Indopithecus and Gigantopithecus. You know, the Asian wood ape lineage, because in Indopithecus you have a gorilla-sized ape that lived at least as far back as eight point six million years ago, potentially further as far west as the Potwar Plateau of Pakistan with another mandible being found in the Suwalik Hills of India. And then you have, you know, the younger form, Gigantopithecus blackie in Thailand and Vietnam and China uh, with a mandible recovered as far south as Java up to about 300,000 years ago. So you're talking about 8.6 million years ago till about 300,000 years ago over this massive geographic span of Asia. And yet we only have a few mandibles and about a thousand teeth. And so this idea, I think that people and I I can hardly blame, you know, the neophyte Sasquatch uh, contender for hearing stories like ours and thinking, oh, well, you've got this valley that seems to be just chock full of activity. They must have been there for a long time. You know, there must just be bones accumulating all over the place. But you think about, again, that that tenure of time and that geographic span in Asia only producing this small handful of. Of, of materials. And I, you know, I'd love to speak to, cause I think Paul has studied a tremendous amount about those animals and the taphonomy and, uh, of those fossil sites. And, you know, those, those bones are preserved by key processes that we just don't have in the Washita's number one being karst and limestone. 
there's there is some karst assemblages in the southern Washita's, but it's best I can tell it's about ten to fifteen miles due south of where we we operate. It's outside of our research area and and outside of our access. And and even then, there's no guarantee that you're going to have access to those. There has to be some type of an opening from the surface to go down to the subsurface. And, and to, since you brought it up, karst, for those of you who don't know, and I'm not a geologist, but a, a karst topography is basically where you have multiple strata of, of rock and you'll have, say, you'll have a, a layer of granite or quartzite, and then it's underlain by a, 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 a layer of limestone, something that's, that dissolves easier in water. And what happens is over time, that limestone deposit basically dissolves and you have, and you have an air pocket left behind and that creates a cave. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, and, and particularly with Gigantopithecus, all the fossils, you know, most of the ones in China come from these karst caves. And it's not to say that, that the animals were living there, but these taphonomic studies that were done show that, that the fossils were actually brought there, brought in there by, by porcupines that were, that were gnawing on the bone uh, for calcium. And what's left behind, of course, is the teeth and enamel being harder than bone. It, it's the last thing that to go. Paul, you keep using that word taphonomy. Can you can you explain to our listeners what what, what is taphonomy? I'm going to ask y'all to bear with me. I'm going to race through this as quickly as possible. It's kind of important, and so I want to catch on some of the key points. So bear bear with me. But but taphonomy, in essence, is it's the history of a bone artifact from death to discovery. So it's in its accumulative uh it's a cumulative study so as soon as that animal uh perishes however it perishes and and however it ends up in the ground if it ends up in the ground and ultimately in the hands of a, of a paleoanthropologist or, or archaeologist it's used for a number of things but primarily it's used in, in paleoenvironmental reconstruction to estimate things like species uh, richness and, and abundancy and and uh, you get things like MNI, which is minimum number of individuals, uh, like say on a kill site. Um, if you have you know, two left femurs, well, then you've, you've got to have at least two animals. So, and these are things that are important in, in kind of reconstructing what what the time period looked like and what the site looked like. Essentially, you know how an animal died, um, where it's deposited, if it was natural causes, is it like a cat? You know where you know they run off uh, and hide somewhere. They get sick and they den up or hide under a, a bush or in a, in a crack somewhere, and then they just die. Uh, was it actually killed by another animal? And if so, uh, was there was there scavenging involved, which is going to scatter those bones? Uh, was it carried there by by the animal that killed it? Was it buried immediately? And that all depends on on uh, the environment that they're in. And it's it's a it's a pretty complicated process, and there's multiple layers to it, but Essentially, you've got all these these forces and these these variables that that can affect when you pull a bone out of the ground. How did it get there, and why? Take for example, if it's uh, if it's delayed and it stays on the surface, it's going to be exposed, you know, much longer to uh, to the elements and weathering, uh, sun bleaching it. And then if, if you're in an arid environment, like say a desert or something, um, it's going to lay on top of the surface much longer. Or maybe not. It might get covered up in a dune, but it's also going to get weathered uh, more harshly with, with blowing sand and and, uh, and dust. And, and so, you know, things like rated deposition, it, it's all determined by by the climate, the environment. Uh, and in, in our case, with the, you know, you, you're looking at a, a very, a very wet, deciduous forest. Then you've got things like bioturbate, what they call bioturbation, which is essentially is 
is when a living thing affects um, strata and soil strata. And that's things like gophers and, and uh, roots, uh, roots burrowing down from plants on the surface will, will move bone around. It'll create pockets and things will shift around. It'll leave marks on the bone. Uh, gopher runs are notorious for destroying uh, archaeological assemblages. They'll run right through a, a site especially a bone bed and they'll chew up all the bone and gnaw on it, get, get the calcium out of it. Um, and these, these, these burrow runs and things like that actually show up in, in the archeology. span um, Then you've got things like what they call fluvial transport, which I think is possibly a big factor down in area X. And that's where you've got large bodies of water that move things downstream rapidly. You, you'll have bones that, are, that get deposited on a beach somewhere or, or a rock, you know, a, a sandbar. And then, they end up getting picked up in a flood or, or just by natural, you know, rising of the water. It can carry a bone miles downstream. The reason why that's important is when you have, when you're trying to reconstruct a, a, an environment of, you know, say 10,000 years ago, you could be reconstructing the wrong environment. If the animals carried down, you know, miles downstream to a different, a different microclimate, then, you know, you, you really care about where it's deposited or where it's killed or vice versa. So it's, it's complicated. And, and then you, they've done so many studies on this kind of stuff where uh, articulated uh, or semi-articulated limbs will actually uh, transport farther downstream. Uh, you'd think it would, it would sink faster uh, by the weight, but it's, it's about surface area. And um, skulls, on the other hand, will usually sink, and then, but then they're going to tumble on the bottom of the, of the stream and get, get eroded that way. And all of this, this kind of stuff will skew uh, your, your, your environmental reconstructions. Particularly, Paul, if you have a running sh- body of water, right? Um, a, a creek or a river that, that has a really strong current, you may as well kiss all that stuff goodbye, right? Any sign. I mean, it's just going to carry it miles down the, down the, uh, the waterway. Sure. And it's going to scatter, like say you had a, a complete, you know, leg bone or a leg assemblage that's articulated and uh, it's being held together by sinew and skin and, and, uh, and hide and things like that. And it's going to, as it gets, gets carried downstream, um, it's going to be bumping into boulders and logs, snags and things like that. It's going to start ripping that thing apart and it's going to just completely scatter. And it may end up getting deposited on a sandbar somewhere downstream. It may not. And, and so it's been further battered and, and eroded and, and, uh, degraded to the point where it's, it's less apt to survive. And the best way that, you know, we, as archaeologists, how we, we study this is what they call uh, bone surface modifications or BSMs. BSMs can be are, are indicative of things, like I said before, like erosion, wind and water. That's the weathering. They've actually got stages. Um, they've, they've calculated stages of weathering on how fast a bone will crack and, and splinter. Um, and that could be indicative of how much time it's spent on the surface. Trampling, uh, that's really big in this, this part of the, the world. In, in Oklahoma, we've got a lot of uh, bison kill sites from archaeological assemblages. And so you'll have herd animals, uh, especially on these bison kills, where they'll, they'll trample you know, other, other animals trying to get out of a, a box canyon or an arroyo. And so you're going to get all kinds of fractures. And, and, uh, or you could have a bone just laying on the surface that's been there for quite some time. And alone, you know, elk or something, a, a large ungulate will come along and step on it and, and crack it in half. So you have to be able to d- discern that uh, from any kind of human activity. And then, of course, you got gnaw marks, which is usually the most um, the most prolific uh, rodents, uh, rats, and 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 mice uh, will gnaw on bone. 
canids, um, predators, all kinds of scavengers. You know, and in, in Africa, especially a lot of the hominid sites in Africa, hyenas are sort of one of the number one scavengers, and they 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 lay waste to entire you know assemblages. And so, uh, and then you've got cut marks um, where you've got signs of human processing, and um, you've also got some things like like I, I mentioned before, root etching, where roots will will filter down into a, an assemblage and they'll lay up against that bone and, and for, you know, months or even years and they'll, they'll actually lay, leave marks, you know, striations behind, but they leave a telltale sign. And, uh, and the reason why this is kind of important is you've got, you've got examples where uh, the best case would be like in, in homo erectus sites in Africa and in, in, in some cases a Levant, uh, you know, you have this theory that Homo erectus was this great hunter, and that's what brought him up out of Africa. They were chasing and pursuing game and hunting him with stone tools. But we've also got sites where you have you have uh, gnaw marks, you have uh, incisor marks and, and gnawing and from a predator, uh, and then you have cut marks that are on top of that. On the Homo erectus bones? No, no, sir. On, like, say, a woolly rhinoceros bone. But you'll have cut marks and you'll have gnaw marks on it. But it matters what order they come in because if if you've got cut marks on top of gnaw marks or or say carnivore you know pitting and uh, bite marks and things of that nature, well that that insinuates that that the the Homo erectus probably just came up on that animal and or maybe scared off the uh, the original killer and then is scavenging that carcass. Um, and you've even got some examples where it's it's not easily discernible what what marks are which. And so you've got carnivore marks, cut marks, and you've got uh, scavenger, you know, gnaw marks. And so it's really important if you want to, you know, accurately depict, you know, say the hunting and subsistence strategies of Homo erectus, you got to get these kind of things right. But then this is something that I think is is also going on down in, in our neck of the woods, but you've also got acid etching and you've got, you know, highly acidic soils. It's going to break down that bone uh, much faster. And then you've got, you've got digestive enzymes. And so obviously this probably wouldn't factor into a, to a, a wood ape carcass, but you know, you'll have, you'll have small rodent bones turn up that have pitting and come to find out they came from owls. They were in an, inside an owl pellet and then get regurgitated and then they end up in a site. And so that can, you know, that can further obscure, you know, what's actually gone on down there. And, and so it's important to, uh, to be able to discern this. Um, other things like, it's, especially in Africa, you've got sites where uh, originally you'll have Homo erectus uh, or hominid fossils that have uh, pitting or even star-shaped marks that look like, they look like marks from uh, canines and like something is bitten into it. And they've done experiments to determine that in, in actuality they were they were they were put down by termites, and uh, termite etchings and markings and, and they, they can they can actually look like you know root etching and and gnaw marks from from say a rodent and so and that that of course is another indicator for a microclimate you know the the termite mounds are long gone but but that apparently at that time, that's where they were getting their calcium from as they were, they were dragging bones in. And so, um, even insects can, can move bone around on the surface, you know, and, and then it's going to get deposited in, in another place where it originally got killed. So all of these things, I mean, and I'm, this is just kind of a, a nutshell, uh, overview of, of taphonomy in general, but, 
given given this baseline of of all the different things that can happen and how they can they can drastically uh, determine your your uh, or change your hypothesis on what you think happened um let's try to apply that to, to our, our target species here. Um, in our area, um, in, in area X, like we, we talked about, you know, it's, it's a, it's a riparian watershed with, with a fast moving, uh, water body. And there's a lot of erosion. There's not a lot of soil down there. Um, you've got topsoil of course, but you'd be hard pressed to get, get deeper than six inches. If you went to go dig something, um, there's a lot of bedrock exposed bedrock, um, a lot of uh, rocks that have been moved over time, you know, from that fluvial action, as they say, and you've got those acidic soils. Um, and so it's just the idea that, that these animals are just going to die and lay there. And so these are all variables that just can't be, the, they can't be predicted or planned for when you're hoping and expecting to find some sort of bone. So, Paul, this is why all the remains of human ancestors can go into the back of a small pickup truck bed. It won't even fill the bed of a pickup truck. That's how few remains we have of Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis, Heidelbergensis, right? I mean, that's why. The australopithecines and the the paranthropines, and and they're also being found in, you know, deep, deep deposits. And um, we just don't have that kind of of deposition, especially in southeast Oklahoma. I, I would like to say, though, uh, Matt, I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but I do have some experience with with dealing with with uh, archives in in universities, and I would not be the least bit surprised if there happens to be a wood ape specimen, a bone of some kind, laying in a box on a shelf somewhere in somebody's lab, and and I don't mean that to disparage academia, but if there's any academics out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Why do you say that, Paul? Well, professors will inherit collections um, from other professors when they retire. They may or may not actually take it with them. They may have spent the last 35, even 40 years excavating in, in foreign countries and, and, and collecting artifacts that, that aren't necessarily conducive to their research. Um, and so they just accumulate these things and they may not ever get studied or looked at and they just end up sitting there in, in a lab. And, and if the, the lab manager doesn't really care about that, that collection, they're not going to bother to go through the box. They may have a grad student or an undergrad, maybe go through it to label it and they don't really know what they're looking at or what they're looking for even. And so, I mean, I don't, it's, it's not to say that it's, it's so rampant and widespread, that, but I, I, I just know personally that, you know, uh, a case in point, um, in the nineties after my undergrad, um, I, I spent about three weeks looking in the, uh, an old world war II barracks in the South campus in Norman uh, at the university of Oklahoma. I was looking for an infant burial that was having to be, uh, uh, repatriated to an Indian tribe. And it was, it was because it was, a, a, a an infant that had died and it had grave goods. It had some shell bead and, and some bone bead work and things like that that were associated with the burial. Um, they wanted the, that, that assemblage back. And I spent literally three weeks going through shelf after shelf, box after box, looking through human remains from, from some burials that had been dug up in the thirties by the WPA when they were building the lake. And I eventually found the infant burial. It was in a completely different box, um, from a completely different site where it did not belong. And it just took me actually going through each box and each bag in each box, trying to find this thing. 
And that's just one experience. Um, I just, I just know it. There's, there's labs all over the country where, you know, some professor has spent his entire career digging up everything and, and not necessarily going through everything. And cause it's not, it's not, you know, pertinent, um, necessarily, um, to his, to his specific, you know, area of expertise or his thesis or whatever he's trying to, trying to answer. And so the point is, is that, you know, who's looking at that stuff, <laughs> you know? And, and so, and that's just one university in one state, you know, and it's, it's a long shot, but I would not be surprised. And this happens every once in a while, some, some, you know, some grad student full of piss and vinegar wants to go looking through old collections and they end up finding an entire, entirely new species of something. And this happened about six months ago, which I could remember the case. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a kicker? That actually does happen. And so, it's um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that there could actually be, you know, a wood ape um, bone fragment or, or or bone element somewhere in somebody's lab, just sitting in a paper bag or a Ziploc bag in a in a box somewhere on a shelf, and someone looked at it and said, "Well, hell, I don't know what that is," and and they just forgot about it, you know. And so, anyway, that's just I just I thought that would be something interesting to kind of throw out there. I, well, it, it kind of reframes the question of, you know, why has no one ever found bones? And it could be, well, people might have found bones and not known what they were looking at. Because, you know, if, if, if you're not looking for something or aiming at something when you're seeking, I mean, let's say, you know, I, I end up sorry if there's any stamp collectors in the listenership because I end up ragging on those people just because that seems so strange and foreign to me. But, you know, I'm not a stamp collector, so I have I have no idea about the value or history of certain stamps. So let's say if I'm at, you know, a flea market or, you know, some uh, antique store or something like that, whatever I'm looking for, I might be looking right past things that are of great value to someone somewhere. And I have no idea because it's not what I'm looking for. And so you can imagine that people who are in these environments who are just conducting some other sort of survey, you know, that are finding fragments of bone, you know, to your point, without something really recognizable, like a skull or a pelvis or something that would just be so big and strange and bizarre that it would immediately strike the observer is maybe being unique or different or having value, but you know, a finger bone or something like that, someone's probably just going to assume that that's the bone of, uh, you know, a much more quote unquote normal animal, like a deer or elk or something like that. And, and have complications with things like, like pigs and, and bear, uh, and even to some degree mountain lions, they're, uh, the bones, their their phalanges, uh, their finger bones, if you will, to the uninitiated, looks strikingly similar to human finger bones. Uh, you know, with the exception maybe being size, but they're they're roughly the same shape, and they, I mean, morphologically, they they look very similar uh, to the untrained eye. And so it's just, and and people, like you said, people people assign value to something that's very subjective. And you know, I I, I belong to several uh, Facebook you know, artifact groups and things, mainly just to keep me on my toes and, and just seeing what people are finding out there. But I got into it with a guy. Um, he was well, well intentioned, but he found a, a bone, uh, washed up on a river and he was thoroughly convinced it was a bison, uh, that had cut marks and it had been processed. And it simply wasn't the case. It was, it was, um, it was a cow, uh, probably a, it was a metacarpal as I recall. And it, it, it was a juvenile. So, the distal ends had had not fused yet, and so those those elements of the bone basically disappeared quicker. It's a less dense, you know, it's a young growing bone, and so it it, it wasn't present. 
And, and I tried to explain this to him and it was, it was gnaw marks from obviously from some type like a, you know, a coyote or something. And he just didn't, he didn't want to buy it. And a lot of folks, they, they want to, they want to know how much their, their arrowheads are worth, you know, monetarily. They don't, and, and they'll find one that's got a broken base or, or tang on it and, or tip is broken off and they call them heartbreakers. And to them, it's, it's a tragedy that they found this, this relic, you know, stone tool and it's, to them, it's worthless. But they don't see the intrinsic value and the scientific value. There's so many things that could be gleaned from that particular artifact, you know, and that's just not their uh, baseline of, of assessing value, you know. And so the same could definitely be said for, for a, a long bone or a finger or toe bone that came off a wood ape somewhere and just ended up in some scientist's lab and they just they've just ignored it. We've talked a bit about the rarity of bones being preserved and all the processes that lead to that preservation. But let's just say, Paul, since, you know, this is your world and this is your profession, that, you know, if, if Daryl and I were on a team with you and you're the team leader and our mission is to try to find and recover bone material in Area X, what would that even look like? I mean, what would our, our week or our days look like? What would you have us do and what kind of difficulties or obstacles would we be facing down there? There has to be a um, in any kind of scientific endeavor like that, you, 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 there has to be a systematic approach. And the best way that archaeology has figured out to do that type of an exercise is, is through surveying. And basically, it's, it's done by, by walking a transect, which is a, a fancy word for saying a, a compass bearing. Um, and usually you'll, you'll have an interval of anywhere between 5 to 10 or 15 meters apart, sometimes 30 based on the terrain and, and the amount of personnel and how much ground you're trying to cover. And you'll walk that transect, you'll shoot a, a compass, you know, azimuth and you'll walk, you know, a certain distance along that line. And every, every 50 meters or so you drop a shovel test and you'll, what you'll do is you'll dig a little hole and, and you'll screen the soil. Um, you know, there's parameters on, on how wide and how deep that hole needs to be. Uh, and what would make you terminate it? Like, you know, for example, bedrock, obviously you can't go through bedrock or, you know, you dig into a sterile soil. So I'd have to teach you a little bit about soil composition and, you know, what a, a, a culturally sterile soil might look like. And so, um, and then you just continue on and, and then you, and you lay down a grid essentially of these transects, uh, going back and forth in, in your, your study area. Or if, if, if there's no, if there's little soil and, and if it's, it's based on, uh, uh, if you have a lot of surface visibility, um, which you're not going to have in, in area X and what you do see is mostly bedrock, but, um, then you're, you're just going to be looking on the surface for, for artifacts, literally looking on the ground left and right as you walk, you know, scanning the ground, looking for flakes, looking for stone tools or something that looks out of the ordinary. And of course, looking for bone. Um, now, it, and, and of course, you know, we're human beings. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're not Superman and, and usually humans take the path of least resistance. And it's, it's an easy, uh, that's an easy thing to do down there because pretty much everything around you is not, it's not a, a, an easy path. And so, you know, I followed Daryl through some treacherous, hellacious hikes down there back in the, back in the day and just damn near killed us, you know, and it just, it's just not suitable for, you know, a leisurely walk. And so the last time I was down there, I was with Doc Haithcote and we went to go look at the abandoned cabin. And of course, I'm looking everywhere and I, I managed to find a, 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 a toe bone off of a deer and, and, and a piece of antler. Uh, but the antler was was highly abraded and eroded, um, weathered, and it had it was damn near chewed up uh, from rodent gnawing. 
And so, and I brought it back to camp, you know, as if to say, well, well, here's some deer down here. We know there's deer there, but I mean, but it was just uh, a random, I just happened to see it, you know, but I was looking, doc was right next to me. He didn't see it. And so, you know, you'd have to be looking, everybody would have to have some level of, of cursory training on what to look for and, and how to look for it. I was just walking down a, a, a two track, you know, trail, an ATV trail. And, you know, we did manage to get off the beaten path a few times, but you know, and in, in, in that particular environment, I mean, the ground is, is incredibly rocky pretty much everywhere. And, and that those rocks are covered in, in poison ivy and vines and leaf litter. And just half the time you can't see what you're stepping on. And so that's why the best place to look for artifacts down there are going to be areas of exposed soil, um, or rock. And that's along the roads and the two tracks and the ATV trails and, you know, the game trails and things like that. And we went down and, and specifically got onto a sandbar and a gravel bar. And of course I spent most of my time, you know, looking for stuff, you know, and cause that's where it's going to, that's where it's going to wash up, you know, it's going to deposit there. Consequently, you know, there's not a lot of recorded sites in the Washita's, but that's not because they weren't there necessarily. It just means they haven't been found because they can't be found. There's nothing to be found. What well, seems like too the the difficulty would be, you know, if you're if you're finding artifacts or signs of human presence historically or prehistorically and determining that as a starting point of an archaeological survey, you what we're doing is like more I mean, I guess you could say we're basing it on uh, visual encounters and sightings, but even barring that, it's like, okay, well, we have this radio tag data. We're fairly confident that represents a wood ape. So we'd be almost like anticipatory or predictive because we're trying to figure out, okay, well, we have 70 to 75 square miles that we think constitutes at least one year's range of this thing. Maybe somewhere in there is where it might die or another one has died. So we're trying to kind of predict where to even begin because we don't have the starting point of a single site. We've got 75 square miles and going, all right, well, we, we got to pick somewhere to begin. And, you know, the odds, it seems like the odds just stack up higher and higher and higher and higher the more we think about it. I think about all the time. I think about it when I'm down there and I think about it at four o'clock in the morning laying in my bed. And, you know, you know, Daryl and I, we chased those things up the side of the mountain in the old compound, you know, to the point where we just gave up chasing them because it's, it's, it's futile. But consider that slope. You're, you're talking about a, you know, a 40, 50 degree slope that's covered in b- large boulders and, you know, scree, loose rock, uh, large, large deadfalls, small, medium deadfall trees laying on their side. And all that's covered in vine and, and poison ivy and poison oak and 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 just clambering up the side of that thing is is just extremely difficult and taxing on the human body. And you may get 50, 60, 70 yards up the side of that mountain, and you're not even close to, to the top. And imagine how many cliff faces that are like that or slopes of a mountain that are like that. You know, could they could they shove uh, you know, Uncle Fred when he dies, could they shove his carcass? you know, under one of those, those deadfalls or this, you know, a tree snag. Sure. But I mean, how the odds of us even encountering one, because we just can't get there and you've got thousands of square miles of this. It's just, you know, it's just insane to, to, to think that we could just, 
you know, and, and the reason why I'm looking on the ground when I go hiking down the road or the trail is because that's all I can do. I mean, that's the best I can do, you know, in the best of circumstances. Now, that's not to say that if we had to crawl up over the side of a mountain, I'm, I'm not going to still be looking, but we don't even know where to look. When you're talking about what you're aiming at and we're aiming at discovery and discovery is predicated on, you know, a diagnostic portion of the animal, a specimen or a part of the animal, the likelihood of just discovering one that's died naturally is so low. And it just happens to be that the most direct and expedient method of obtaining, you know, the the most biological material, i.e. an entire body is to lure or to anticipate an encounter with a living individual and collect it. And again, I know that that's harsh uh, for, for some people to hear, but it just happens to be the case. And so you have to decide, well, you know, is your value structure placed more on, ensuring that all of them are protected and that all of their habitat is protected. It's been 60 plus years, folks, that people have been searching for Bigfoot and no one stumbled on a bone yet. And it could happen. And like we talked about, it it might have already happened and that might be sitting in some lab somewhere. But we're trying to bring this about and we're we're trying to bring this about yesterday. You know, we're, we're not aiming to be having these conversations and saying, we'll get them next year, boys, for the next five, 10 years. And it just so happens to be that the method that we've chosen to pursue happens to be as difficult as it is the simplest one. And happens to be the one that conforms to the conventions of, of science of the scientific method uh, as regards uh, holotypes. Do you think that even if we did find a tooth or a skull or a fragment, that that would be the end all be all? Or do you think that you know, academic and scientific institutions would take that as a starting point to say, all right, now we have enough material here to think that there really might be a population of these things. We should make an effort to collect one. I mean, do you think all roads still lead to a body? I think so. I mean, if you look at, look no further than uh, Gigantopithecus teeth um, and look, look at the debate that's raged on ever since their discovery, they've tried to, uh, to narrow down, you know, based on, cusp morphology and things of that nature, weight and uh, height ratio uh, analysis and things. And they've changed their mind on, on, you know, well, we don't think this is Gigano now. We think this is another ape that we don't know what is that is. Is it homo? Is it ponged? What is it? Is it upright? Is it bipedal? Is it quadrupedal? Uh, yeah. I mean, you just can't answer those questions. Um, there's controversy about its diet. You know, it was a bamboo eater. That's why it went extinct. Well, hold on to that. It was a generalist. It was an omnivore. (laughs) Well, it could also be the case that we find a tooth and it happens to be 250 years old. And so maybe the consensus at that point is, well, there used to be some around, but they're not around anymore. And we're back to square one. Yeah, I think if we if we were to find a tooth uh, in in the valley uh, that that had the right you know characteristics for an animal of that size. Yeah, it would, it would be very compelling. People would take notice, I guarantee, but they're, that's far from settling the debate. You know, specimen collection is our is our number one goal, but that's not to say we're not trying other things and everything is on the table. For sure. I mean, Matthew and I are returning to that valley in just a few short weeks to uh, to go see what uh, our, uh, our camera array is has uh, gotten for us over the last seven, eight months since it was first deployed. 
there's nothing that would make any of us happier than if we got dozens or hundreds of photographs that constituted some major leap forward of progress of closer to acceptance. But we're also not under any delusion that that's going to ever constitute proof. But we're still after it. It still has value to us. And we know that it will be meaningful to you know, the interested public and the general public and, you know, other researchers who follow our work. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we are taking multiple approaches. We're still collecting audio every year. But again, even if we found a bone or if we got great photographs, it's still going to require a specimen. And so we'll always use that as our starting point. And that's the thesis point of this entire discussion. We, we can have success on any one of those fronts or any combination uh, of any of those uh, aspects. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to have the physical specimen. That's just what science requires. I didn't write the rules. We didn't write the rules. You have to have a body. If you want to play the game, you have to play by the rules. And it's that simple. And we are willing to do that. Obviously, we do get so many inquiries through the website and to the Facebook page. And it's been an age old question in, in the topic of Bigfoot and Bigfoot research for as long as research has been around since the late 50s that I think there's this idea that the public has that, oh, you should just be able to tranquilize one. You know, they, they see tranquilizer darts and tranquilizer guns in movies. And I think people have this kind of idea that there's this device that can just turn an animal off and then you can do whatever you want with that animal and then turn it back on again when you're done with it. And so my response to those things for years used to just be, well, I don't know anyone who does anything like that. I mean, where would I even begin? And now, obviously, I've got three people on the line who know a lot about this particular subject. So uh, I'm being joined today by two board of directors, members of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, Travis Lawrence and Paul Bowman, and a close friend of Paul Bowman's named Jeff Hammond, who's a DVM there in Oklahoma. So we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about, you know, these alternatives to collecting a specimen and kind of responding to this host of inbound messages about tranquilizing one. So I guess we could start with Travis. So Travis, you've got some experience in this regard. You grew up on a deer ranch, correct? Yeah, I grew up on a deer ranch in East Texas. Uh, my parents sold it when I was 15. So, you know, those those first 15 years or so of my life, we had an exotic deer ranch. It wasn't very big. It was only 40 acres. We didn't do any hunting or anything like that. But we did tranquilize a lot of animals and uh, to, to sell them to sale barns and private ranches and things like that. And I got, you know, I'm no expert on this by any means. Like Jeff, I'm, I'm really glad Jeff's here, our DVM friend, because he's liable to come along behind us and say how big of an idiot I am. But for how little for how little I know, you know, all, all I can tell you is my experiences with tranquilizing animals. And it ended about 20 years ago. So. I really don't know anything about advancements in the field over the last 20 years or so. But I, I can tell you, like, we had many, many problems, you know, especially whenever we started off tranquilizing deer. I don't know if you want me to just get into, like, telling stories. But, like, for example, you, you can't just buy tranquilizer serum. Uh, you have to have a prescription for it. It's not over-the-counter type stuff. So I can't just walk up to my vet and be like, hey, can I get some tranquilizer? And they're like, what are you going to use it for? I'm like, oh, I'm going to shoot Bigfoot with it. Like, you can't get stuff like that over-the-counter. They're not going to give you a prescription for stuff like that. You got to get a prescription for it, first of all. Secondly, back when we were using the serum, it had to be refrigerated. We had to keep it in a refrigerator anytime that we weren't using it. And it was very expensive. It was like $40 for this little bitty 
I, I don't know if you'd call it a vial, but a little bottle of tranquilizing serum. There was enough to tranquilize like five or six deer, something like that. So it, it's not like it went all that far and it was really expensive. And you had to load it into a dart and you had a set amount of time after you loaded it into the dart before it would start losing its potency. Or at least that's what the vet told us back then is I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like an hour or something before it started losing its potency. And so we had to kind of hurry after we loaded the dart. Like, does that sound familiar, Jeff? Is that is that still true for the tranquilizing serums today? I think what you're talking about is uh, sequestrin or succinylcholine, you know, keeping it in the refrigerator. That's, I mean, that is an old school drug, man, but it was very effective. It was really potent. If that is what it is, I'm sure that's what it was. Do you remember the, the name sequestrin or succinylcholine? Sequestrin sounds vaguely familiar. I, I, I bet that when you said keep it in the refrigerator, it was it was probably that because um, I doubt that they would let you have pentobarbital. That would be the other thing that I would think of that that would be necessary to be refrigerated. But it doesn't lose its potency as quickly as sequestrin does. Sequestrin is a really fast acting drug. It acts really quickly, but it also they if they're going to come out of it, they come out of it very quickly too. But it's basically a muscle paralyzer. So anything that's red muscle, like your diaphragm, any muscles that are you know part of the frame, not the smooth muscle like in the gut, but anything that's like a, what I would call a red muscle, it paralyzes that muscle. And so it, you can't move. And if you get a big enough dose, you can't even take a breath because your diaphragm doesn't work anymore. So that's what makes it kind of potentially dangerous, but it also makes it very effective because... You know, it will knock stuff down, but, you know, you get a little bit too much and it's over the edge. And it's, I mean, I haven't used any myself and I've been in the business since 99. So it's been like 2000, maybe was the last time I used any. So is it is it no longer true that you have to keep uh, tranquilizing serum refrigerated? Or are there some that don't require that? Well, most of them that I use don't require that at all. They're all room temperature. You know, you don't want to let them get too hot, obviously, or at least not too hot for a long period of time. But uh, that particular one that we're talking about is is a really old school drug, and a lot of veterinarians used to use it. You didn't have to worry about drug resistance or anything like that. My theory of anesthesia, well, I got three. Basically, two of them I learned from Dr. Shawley at Oklahoma State University was that there are no safe anesthetic drugs. There's only safe anesthetists. And um, the other one is that you can always give more, but you can't take it back once it's in there. <laughs> and so it, it really makes me be very uh, cautious about how much I give because I know I can always give more, but you know it's kind of hard to take it back, especially with an injectable. You know, And there's not reversal agents for everything that you put in there. And... That if even if there is a reversal agent, you may overdo that and you can cause a reaction that way because of the type of reversal agent that it is. Yeah. I mean, speaking to that point, there was an anecdote that came to mind. You know, Paul Bowman on the call with us, uh, board of directors, member of the NAWAC. Uh, you have experience with, with this sort of thing, too, with large animals. And I think there was one particular anecdote that I recall that I guess you could tell uh, about, you know, when, when something of that nature goes a little too far and becomes irreversible. I was on what you would call the user end of what Travis just described. We were one of the ranch, private ranches. Uh, in a previous life, we had a uh, 
we had a ranch set up uh, as a charity for uh, wounded and disabled veterans. We take them out on uh, guided deer and, and buffalo hunts, turkey hunts, things of that nature. We had deer from native deer that were more or less uh, remnants that, that got caught up in the fence when we built it. But we had a, uh, our ranch, actually our ranch manager was a breeder and he lived about five miles down the road and we made an arrangement with him. We bought about approximately 130 deer from his private herd that he was raising. Uh, and he, he assembled uh, genetics from all over the country, mostly Pennsylvania and, and Michigan. So we were, <clears throat> we were in the, in the process of purchasing deer from him to start our uh, original herd. And he had a, uh, about a 200 plus um, class buck. Uh, for the trophy hunters out there in the world, they would recognize that as a very expensive deer. If you were to if you were to go to a, a private big game ranch or high fence operation, you'd know that that's a. I mean that a deer like that could sell easily as a hunt for thirty thousand or so. Now keep in mind we weren't selling hunts. This was all charity. We were we were taking these these veterans out on these hunts, but and so he would bring them over in a trailer about four or five at a time, as mu- as many as he could dart and safely uh, tranquilize and then drive, you know, load them onto the trailer and then bring them over um, to the ranch and then carry them off and then apply a reversal agent. And, you know, one thing I do recall is that, you know, he had to keep uh, a towel over the deer because I, mean, I don't know exactly what type or what, what exact medicine he was using, but apparently these deer were aware they weren't completely out. And so you wanted to keep them as calm as possible. Uh, to keep their vitals from from spiking and, and all that and from getting them too too drove up and he had brought this this uh very nice buck uh very expensive buck and um he brought him over and at some point uh and i think i don't know uh, travis uh, he remembers this story when i told it um it's been several years now but i know that in the process of, of applying a, a reversal agent something went wrong and the deer died and I know that he was trying to, to obtain, possibly obtain a, a, another straw of semen from this particular buck. So he could, he was, his plan was to continue on his herd and start, start anew after he sold most of his deer to us. And so and truth be told, we, we lost two or three, at least two or three deer in the same fashion. And, you know, everybody was sick about it. Of course, it was not something that was planned and it was, you know, he was not a, a trained veterinarian, but he, he had extensive experience with cattle and, and uh and livestock and whatnot and so uh you know he'd done this you know numerous times before and it just so happened and, and it's my understanding that that weight and what's you know what's on their stomach at that particular time there's a lot of variables at play uh and then of course the animal could have gotten stressed out prior to going under and getting loaded up in the trailer and all that and then he may have applied too too much or too little uh reversal agent so and it, and it cost us, it cost him really a lot of money. Cause he, I mean, we didn't, obviously we didn't, he didn't charge us for that, that buck, but it's a very complicated, and we're talking about, you know, taking a, a deer that's been raised in a pen and, and darting it, you know, from, you know, 15, 20 yards and, and then waiting, you know, he's in a pinned up, you know, fenced area and waiting for that deer to go down and then loading it carefully and then transporting it. And then, you know, unloading it. And so this is, this is a very static controlled environment. And yet, you know, the deer still died. The host of variables that are at play when you're talking about, you know, if I were to come to you with your expertise, Jeff, and say, all right, we've got a hypothetical animal that, you know, the females might weigh anywhere from 
you know, 500 to 650 pounds and might top out around six and a half to seven feet tall. The males might weigh 800 plus pounds and top out around seven and a half to eight feet tall. There are varying ages and sizes. Um, you know, we could randomly encounter any one of these individuals of various sizes at any time in this dense environment. I would like for you to guide us through the process of tranquilizing one of these. I mean, you could see now that there's this whole host of variables in the individuals you're dealing with. And then you could speak to, you know, the, the host of variables in, well, how do you even begin that process of selecting what sedative to use? Uh, what sort of delivery mechanism? You know, I'm sure there are various diameters and sizes of darts and, uh, you know, penetrating the skin and muscle of a very dense, large animal, et cetera. So, you know, I'd love to hear you weigh in on how you would tackle such like a, a thought experiment like that. Well, let me just first say that that, that story that, that Paul was telling is like every, every deer raiser, deer veterinarian, it's all our worst freaking nightmare, you know, because I can just about guarantee that guy probably tried to account for every single stinking variable there is. And sometimes there's just not one, which is my third point is every animal's different. You never know when either maybe he had an increased uh, body temperature that nobody was aware of. The, when Paul was talking about the, the rag covering the eyes, that particular kind of anesthetic he's talking about, I, I would imagine is, is a dissociative one, probably either ketamine or maybe teletamine where you still kind of know what's going on. That's why they're covering the eyes because the input of light into the eyes starts to fire the brain and, you know, it increases brain activity when you're under anesthesia, you're trying to decrease brain activity. Moving forward on to, to like a wood ape, you know, we were, we're talking about a ruminant when we're talking about a deer. Well, now let's just throw all the nuance out the window that we're talking about deer. And now we're going to talk about what are we going to use to knock down a primate? I, mean, I can think of some effective drugs. The one that, that Travis brought up, succinylcholine, that, that one actually crossed my mind. Like if you were talking about knocking something down, that'll knock it down. Uh, but you've gotten, you know, depending on the dose that you gave it, you might have five to seven minutes to do whatever it is that you need to do. And then the thing is up and, doing whatever it's going to do, which could include ripping your head off or whatever, you know. Um, I think I would probably, if I was going to choose a drug that I had access to, I would pick Telazole. Uh, it's a good, very rapidly acting dissociative anesthetic with uh, what's called a benzodiazepine, which is like a Valium, but it's a really like a fast acting Valium. And that particular drug works really well. So now... Now we're into the delivery system part of it. And again, we're, we're taking into account how far is this thing going to run in what kind of dense forest that we're able to track it. It's not like, you know, you, you get a good lung shot on a, on a buck with a bow and arrow and, you know, you've got a, a fairly decent blood trail. Every hunter I know, myself included, Jeff, I'm sure Travis had this issue. You, you can make a perfect shot. Uh, in the vitals and they don't always go down. And that's, that's definitely a variable we have to take into consideration. Like, let's say hypothetically that we are talking about a large male, you know, an 800 to 900 pound 
seven and a half, eight foot tall animal. I know these are all hypotheticals, but let's say, you know, barring any obstacles, barring any trees, you do get a clear shot, you know, before we even get into the delivery mechanism and the kind of dart or the kind of projectile, what do you think, Jeff, would be the the time frame from, you know, something like that, hitting an animal like that with that kind of dense skin and muscle and bone, et cetera, and that animal actually being deactivated and being down? Well, again, it, it, I mean, and I'm just going off of, of, the animals that I've knocked down and their adrenaline level in, in the drug that you're using, I think you, you can probably avoid some of that adrenaline rush with using something like telazole. It would need to be fairly highly concentrated. But, I mean, you're looking at that thing could get a, a good five-minute head start on you, even two and a half minutes before it goes down. And that's an eternity. Yeah, that's a long time. How much ground can that thing cover? you know, in two and a half minutes. It's pretty amazing uh, what they can do. I mean, I mean, you guys know that. Hell, in 30 seconds, you you've, you guys have seen deer in, in five seconds be just gone. Yeah, on one breath after you take out both of their lungs. And you're talking about uh, taking uh, at least two to five minutes, maybe 10 for an anesthetic to get where it needs to go? With no blood trail. With no blood trail to follow them, that's the key. No way to track them. I think the reason that a lot of people think that, well, just start them down, you know, because they've watched too many John Wick movies and James Bond, and, you know, there's too much Hollywood stuff out there that makes it look like it's really something simple, but it's not. I mean, you're talking about taking a projectile that's, at best, the size of a pen, an office pen, like a writing utensil, and you're filling it full of a liquid, and you're shooting it out of a gun, you know, pushing it out with a, a powder blast of a twenty-two, basically, and hoping, you know, it's got a trajectory like a freaking rainbow, and you guys know that, and you're expecting that to, to actually hit something. You guys have, have darted deer before, and, you know, Travis... You weren't darting him from 100 yards away. Oh, no, I was going to mention that. I mean, we, I, I, did, I don't know about the variance of different tranquilizer guns, but the one we had was exactly like you described. It was it, it shot off a 22 blank, and you loaded a, a dart into it. The dart was like maybe the size of a, I don't know, a 20-gauge shot shell, something like that. And uh, we, we were told that it had a maximum range of about 30 yards. And it was just open sights, like a bolt-action wooden rifle. It just, it just looked like any other rifle, except it shot this, you know, maybe 50 caliber dart out of it or something like that. And you had to hit the animal at a specific spot. Like the vet told us to shoot them in the butt, to shoot them in their hind corners, because the serum had to get injected into a muscle. And if you hit them like in the shoulder or basically anywhere where, they, where it hit a bone, it wasn't going to be effective. So we always had to shoot them right there in the hindquarters. We're talking about primates. Primates think differently than ruminants do and ungulates do. They just, they just do. They have more of a sense of reason about them than your ungulate wants to just take off and, and run. That's what they do. And, and a primate knows how to not only do that, but to elude and to pull the damn thing out, you know. 
Yeah, that that was going to be my response to that is that you would just think that the reflexive response would just to be to reach and pull it out. You know, the, we have those kind of reflexes that are so automatic, you know, this, the same reflex that causes you to pull your hand off of a hot stove. You're not thinking about that. It just occurs. And so for something that's dexterous with fingers uh, to feel some bit of pain or discomfort somewhere with some thing protruding out of their skid, they probably would automatically just pull the thing out. So that's what I was going to ask too, is, you know, how quickly is that entire, the load of that vial being delivered? The dart is designed, at least new darts, uh, which is P-N-E-U-D-A-R-T. They're designed to, whenever they, they hit, there's a charge that goes off inside the dart. Uh, the, the old darts you used to have to put together yourself, like you used to have to put the plunger in. There was a, a charge that you put inside of the dart, and then you put the you screwed the feather and the point on, you know, and, and you put the drug inside of the, the front part of the dart. Well, whenever the dart would hit the animal, it was supposed to make the charge go off inside of the dart, and then that would push the plunger because that charge was was sitting behind the plunger and it would it would push the plunger which pushed the drug so it was supposed to happen fairly rapidly but i guess you know my thoughts are is if there's a you know kind of an incomplete or or you know let's let's just go you know crazy and say we're going to put a tracking device on the dart so that we can track our animal once we hit them you know if they pull it out because they have opposable thumbs you know, there goes that theory. Well, let, let me ask you, Jeff, uh, you've said two things that I've wanted to comment on. And the first one was earlier, whenever you said, like the general rule is, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you, you can't take any of that serum back once it gets into them. And uh, it, it had me thinking, like, you, whenever you tranquilize things, you don't just set off to go tranquilize an animal. Like Matt described earlier, you know, the, the great variances in weight between wood apes that we've seen, we've seen small ones, we've seen ginormous ones, you know, anywhere from 100 pounds to, you know, probably 1,000 pounds. And it's, it's a misconception for people to think that you can just load a dart and you can go tranquilize something uh, because you have to give a specific amount of that serum based on the weight of the animal. And like I can tell you, I, like I remember like it was yesterday, our very first experience tranquilizing an animal, it was a black buck. That was kind of kind of like a young black buck. He was just starting to turn black, uh, but he was a beautiful animal. Uh, he, he was, you know, you can probably tell where the story's going. I don't remember the exact amounts, but I think the vet told us that we had to give him one cc of the serum per every hundred pounds. So I'll just stop you as soon as you said black buck. My heart sank. Yeah, this was a beautiful animal. Like, uh, so we were going to tranquilize him to sell him to this this hunting ranch. And I think my dad said, I think that black buck's about 100 pounds. You know, they're not very big. So we gave him one cc of this serum and I shot him and he went down. We had to get him in the front pasture for this to happen, by the way. There's no way we could do it in the back 40 uh, because you'd just be chasing them around all day long and they'd, they'd be eluding you the whole time. But we got him in this six acre pen up front and we shot this black buck and he went down and I was kind of dragging him out in the open. And my dad went and got the trailer and started backing it up. And I drug him up into the trailer and we realized he wasn't breathing anymore. And he had died on us. I mean, that was our first experience trying to do this. And, you know, if, if an animal dies like that, like, it's just a total loss. You can't even eat them. Like we skinned him and got his, 
you know, got his beautiful skin because, you know, at least we could get something from him. But he died on us. You got drug residue there, and, and yeah, it's 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 sad. It's just a sad deal all the way around. And there's no way it was off by 10 pounds. Like, he, he might have been 90 pounds, you know? And we loaded just a little bit too much, and, and he died on us. Well, and again, it goes back to every animal's different. So what worked in or what killed that buck might not have even knocked down the next one, you know? He could have been at the other end of the spectrum. And I'll say this, there is a 1%, and I had a, I had a talk with my girls in the office about this the other day. There is a 1% risk anytime you put anything under anesthesia. There's a 1% chance that for absolutely no reason, a perfectly, we're talking about things that are perfectly, quote unquote, apparently healthy, that they die. And that's humans, that's, that's uh, domestic animals, all alike. So that black buck may have been in that 1%. I'll say this, that we're below that because I do probably at least 60 to 70 anesthetic procedures a month in this hospital. But again, I've, I probably underdose for that reason because, like Dr. Shawley said, there's no such thing as a safe anesthetic. There's only safe anesthetists. You talk about the risks involved in trying to estimate and uh, size and weight um, and all things being equal. What about the humane nature of, of tranquilizing an animal and the risks involved? Is there... Because it seems to me that there's a possibility that you run a high risk of hurting the animal in the long run and ultimately killing the animal when your intention was never to do so. Is that what, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great point, Paul, because I've, and you and I talked about this the other day and I talked to Matt a, a little bit about it. But OK, now and I'll go I'll kind of go back to, to using ruminants and white-tailed deer. You've got the risk of regurgitation and, you know, you get this animal down and in particular, it's a primate. So the thing's laying on its back. So now you've got the risk of it, you know, not being, you know, what do you do in CPR? When they, what's the first thing you're supposed to do in CPR? Establish an airway, right? So you got an establish an airway with this animal. So that means it was going to need to be intubated. Uh, If it, if it regurgitates any stomach contents, because some of these anesthetics can make him nauseated or, you know, just the fact that it's laying on his back or if it falls and it's laying downhill and, you know, we just ate a big meal of berries and bugs or whatever the hell those things eat. Now he's got aspiration pneumonia moving forward. So, yeah, it wakes up and everything's apparently fine. But then you've got this animal walking around out there slowly going downhill and Travis, I'm sure that you guys saw this in, in, in raising deer. You knock one down and then two, three weeks later, for some reason, it's just sick, won't get better. Probably had aspiration pneumonia. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I mean, I certainly have. And it, it's really, it, you feel horrible because you did this procedure, everything went fine. We lived through it. And now we've got this other complication to deal with. And I'd hate to think that that's something that I did, you know, caused an animal to be sick, even though it was kind of a, a necessity, you know, there was no way around it, but that's a real issue, you know. I think that's a great point to make because 
I might be speculating here, but I think most of the, the time that people are reaching out to us, asking us about alternatives, it's because they're assuming that there is some you know more humane way to validate and verify the existence of these animals beyond the collection of one, you know, i.e. the killing of one. And so Paul and I had had a conversations about this, about, well, is it really more humane to inflict these other sorts of things upon these animals? And especially, you know, in the event that to your earlier points, let's say that you do get uh, a dose into an animal and it's able to make quite a bit of distance to the point that it is unrecoverable and it does go down and let's say it does go down and it does expire while it's down or it goes down and it aspirates or regurgitates. And then now it's on a much slower trajectory towards death and in either event, we'll never recover it. And so it's just a total loss, you know, because it's not going to serve as a type specimen. It's not going to serve to uh, contribute to the protection of the rest of the species. Is that really more humane? So I, I definitely, I try to empathize with the people. I, I understand where they're coming from, but I think you make such a great point that the assumption that this is more humane or more ethical than the alternative of collecting one, I think is, is unfortunately just, it's a fallacy. It's not that accurate. As a person that's not a member of the, the Wood Ape Society yet, I would probably say, and, and I think Paul can attest to this, that even, you know, I've, I've hunted most of my adult life and I love to do it, but it's a very spiritual thing for me. And uh, any time that, that you take another animal's life so that you can sustain your own, it affects me deep down in my soul. And it's, there's a, there's like this, not to get off in the weeds, but there's kind of a mysticism and a, and a bit of a, a pain and an appreciation. And I, I would bet a million bucks that nobody that's a member of the Wood Ape Society wants to have to collect one of these magnificent creatures. However, because we're all scientists and I was, you know, my, I studied basically wildlife biology in, in undergrad it's just what we do as scientists. We collecting specimens is as old as the study. You know, it goes all the way back, way past Darwin. Collecting specimens was the way that we studied the species. And unfortunately, that's an unnecessary evil, but it could be one of the greatest acts of habitat conservation that the world has ever seen. I think that's a great point. It's easy to look at this conversation because I found what you just said pretty moving because to be totally honest, I kind of went into this thinking about all the logistical problems for us as members of the NAWAC. And, you know, I think about things like cost and I think about things like, you know, storage, if things do have to be refrigerated, these are all problems for us to have to deal with. But what you're talking about are, are problems for these animals which is ultimately what we're concerned with and what we're trying to preserve. And so, you know, there are a host of problems that we could confront one of these individuals with uh, if we try to tranquilize or sedate one and, and botch it, which is, it seems like the likelihood of botching it is, is fairly high. And so, yeah, I think there is a bit of a reverence for the animal to be willing to, to make that decision to collect one. I mean, it, what I try to say to people is, you know, there's, there's a certain set of people that say that killing one is ugly and sad. And there's a certain set of people that say that killing one is absolutely necessary. And the fact of the matter is that both of those positions are accurate and they're both correct. It is absolutely necessary. doesn't mean it's pretty, uh, but it is absolutely necessary. So I definitely appreciate your perspective on that for sure. 
I'm kind of with Matt there. I mean, that was beautifully said, Jeff. Uh, I kind of got a little emotional as you were talking through that too. You know, at first when you said something like none of us want to be the guy that actually, you know, takes the life of one of these animals, I was like, well, speak for yourself, Jeff. But, (laughs) but, uh, as you kept talking, I, I realized you were exactly right. You know, none of us wants to be that person. You know, none of us, you know, it's not like we want to hunt these things like, like they're whitetails or something like that. We want to kill one. And, um, we want it to be over with. And the absolute worst thing that could happen, you know, of all possible things that could happen. Uh, I mean, other than us getting killed by one, of course, but the, the worst thing that could happen in our pursuit of this is if we were to wound one of these animals and it were to die without us being able to find it. And it would be a total loss, like what Matt described earlier. And, you know, something else that we haven't talked about yet that I'd like to bring up real quick is, you know, like we're not planning on tranquilizing one of these if if the listeners haven't figured that out yet like we're not gonna try to do anything like that we just wanted to learn more about it from jeff and we wanted to kind of share with y'all how ludicrous we think that idea is other than giving them too much sedative and killing them uh the opposite of that is you give them too little sedative and and all kinds of bad things can happen and i have several stories about what happened whenever we did that or like, like Jeff, or you mentioned earlier the effects of adrenaline on an animal, and you also mentioned that some animals respond differently to the sedatives. Like, I don't know what it was about black bucks, but sometimes they get all keyed up. And like most of our, we had, we had axis deer, black buck, and barasingas. And most of our barasingas and axis deer, whenever we tranquilized them, they didn't give us too many problems. But we had several problems with black bucks either dying or not going down. And it seemed like you had to just be just right with how much you gave them. Like I remember another time where we tranquilized the young black buck buck that wasn't all that big of an antelope. And he went down and I remember going up to him to drag him into a trailer. And like my dad backed up the trailer, we lowered the little gate so we could drag him up onto it. And something about the lowering of the gate, that big sound or something, he got up and ran off. Like after, after I had already grabbed his horns and drug him like 10 yards, he got up and ran off. And so we got back on the little side by side and we chased him around the pasture for like 15 minutes. And he was like bleeding and stuff from where the dart hit him. And after we got, you know, I I think he eventually laid back down again and we tried again. And of course he got up and ran off again and we shot him a second time. And the second time we shot him, I'm I'm remembering more about the story is, is, as I tell it, because we had a couple other people there with us. This was whenever we were selling quite a few animals. And I remember there was another young guy there that was like in his early 20s. He was kind of a stocky guy. And he was the one that was helping me drag these animals up into the trailer. And after we shot this black buck the second time, I remember he went down and a similar thing happened where we drove up to him and tried to grab him and he got up and ran off. And he scared us because, you know, like black bucks have these antlers that are, or they have these horns that are, that are just like spears, you know, they can stab you with them. They can do all kinds of damage real quick. And we'd already shot this thing twice and he didn't go down completely. So we've already given him like twice as much of this serum as he's supposed to be able to take. And here he is running around the pasture. And I remember we chased that animal around till it got dark. And the other young guy that was with us, this guy was nuts. Like he, he would, uh, he, it was him and this other guy that, Basically, what what they did was they were helping us to to tranquilize these animals. And they did that for a lot of ranches. This is something they did. They were kind of like contractors. And my dad hired them to come help us. And they had tons of experience. And he said, I'm going to hide in the bush right here. And y'all keep driving around in this mule. 
And when that black buck comes by, I'm going to jump out and grab him by the antlers or dra- grab him by the horns. And I was like, you're nuts, dude. You're not going to do that. But we'd been chasing this animal around and he wouldn't even let us get within 30 yards of him anymore to shoot him. And we'd been chasing him around and he was just running a circle basically uh, around the same area of pasture. Just, and we'd chased him for like 30 minutes. He said, I'm just going to jump out and I'm going to grab his, his horns. And then y'all back up the trailer and, and help me throw him in there. And I was like, you're nuts, dude. I thought this guy was about to die. And so, but he jumped out and he kind of hid in the bushes and he did exactly what he said he would. And, you know, we, we kind of ran that black buck up to him and he jumped out and he grabbed it by the antlers. And if you don't know much about black buck, they don't really run anywhere. They just hop. So next thing I see is we, we light this guy up in the headlights and he's got this black buck by the horns and it's just bouncing. Like it's, it's, it's bouncing like five feet in the air, you know, like he's just holding on to this thing and it's steadily bouncing. So I go out there and I help him. You know, like I, I try to grab the legs of the thing and it kicks me and cuts me up a little bit. And we eventually back up the trailer there and he catches it like mid jump and like slings it into the trailer. After taking two full doses of the serum, this thing still didn't go down because it got all keyed up. But I think of stories like that whenever people talk about tranquilizing these animals is sometimes they get all keyed up on adrenaline or something. I don't, I don't really understand it. And the serum doesn't really work on them. Man, that guy sounds badass. You need to, if, sir, if you're out there listening, please apply for membership. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that dude helped us several times. And I think I told him, you know, how, how impressed I was with that. And I remember him telling me a story about how he, like a few weeks ago, he'd, he'd been loading up some Watusi bulls and some zebras. And those things are huge and mean. And he had a whole lot more trouble with those than, than he did with what we were doing. But, you know, sometimes the serum doesn't work, kind of like Jeff said. And, and really an even worse story about that. And this is kind of the most memorable story I have from tranquilizing animals that makes me never want to tranquilize anything again, is we had some, some barasingas, and that's not a real popular thing to have in Texas, but it's, it's kind of like an elk, but it's smaller. You know, the, the, the cows, you call them bulls and cows, just like you do with elk, even though they're, they're really deer. And, uh, you know, the, the cows are like 300 pounds and the bulls are like five, 600 pounds. These are, these are big animals. And they look kind of like elk, except their their antlers are kind of like whitetails or something. Like they're they're kind of unique looking. And uh, we had a big Barasinga bull that was, you know, in that 550, 600 pound range, full grown Barasinga bull. And we hit him with the what we thought was the the right number of cc's of the serum, and he went down. And this is like a five thousand dollar animal. This is a, a very expensive animal. And he went down. And I remember. I think this was kind of early on into us doing this. And I was, I wasn't one of the guys that went up to grab him to, to drag him into the trailer. It was my dad and those two guys that I was just telling you about, we used them several times and I was sitting there holding like the door open on the trailer, getting the trailer ready for them to drag it in there. And so there was these three big, strong guys that were going to drag this five, 600 pound animal into the trailer. And these are all big guys. Like my dad's like, you know, six, two, six, three, 250 pounds. And that's how big these other two guys were too. They're like, we're, we're big people. And I remember all three of them grabbed hold of the antlers on that, on that Barasinga bull. And as they started to drag it into the trailer, it got up and literally slung all three of them off. And like, I remember at that moment, like my dad was the last one to hang on. Like he was like flailing him around like a, like a bull does, you know, whenever they, you ever seen one of those videos from Spain or something of a bull just grabbing somebody and just throwing them like they're, they weigh nothing. 
And that's what this Beresinga bull did after taking a full dose of serum. And these two other guys let go pretty quickly. And I remember he threw my dad like 15 or 20 feet. Like my dad says, he tells that story and he's like, I looked down and I was the only one left hanging on. So he decided to let go of that sucker. And, you know, if, if it wanted to, it could have killed all three of them. Like this was a massive animal with big antlers and it just got up and it threw them all off like it was nothing. And seconds earlier, we thought it was completely sedated. You know, it's, it's, and these aren't, these aren't like calm animals, you know, like these aren't pets. Like this was, you know, it wasn't a totally wild deer, you know, it was used to seeing us, but we'd never like petted it or touched it or anything like that before. So it's not like it would normally let us just walk up to it, but it, it just let them walk up to it and grab it by the antlers, start to drag it. And then it got up and threw all of them off to go through something like that. And to think that thing might kill these people or something like that. And I don't know. It made me never want to tranquilize anything again, much less tranquilize a wood ape, because I can only imagine something like that happening uh, with one of those animals. You're you're spot on, Travis. You're spot on with what you're saying. I mean, and, and these are this is all part of anesthetic risk. You know, I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to to come to the conclusion that it's just not practical to to try and tranquilize one of these creatures. Yeah, I think the risk to to humans involved is something to consider, you know, those stories really invoke those images, you know, and make you think about those risks. And, you know, so there's the risk to the animal, but then there is the risk to, to us or to anyone who endeavors in that. And especially just in a, in a remote and dangerous environment. And like what you're describing is, is occurring on a controlled property. You've got access to your vehicles. You've got access. You probably have cell signal, you know, if someone were to get hurt, something were to happen. It's still ugly and it's still bad, but you can call for medical attention. I mean, the place where we're operating, we're so far from help. We're so far from being, there's no chance of getting someone airlifted. You know, we're so, we're hours from getting someone to a medical facility. There's no electricity, no running water, no infrastructure, nothing of the sort. You know, you're in wilderness, pure wilderness. So, and, and again, I think it underscores the purpose of a lot of people's impetus for wanting to suggest that we tranquilize uh, it's based on a humane care and concern for the animal's welfare and the reality is it's just it's it's more humane to actually put one down there's just a whole host of reasons why this is just not a, a feasible avenue and you know part of the reason of doing this episode is just to let people know like we have thought about this because that's usually what the question is it's like have you guys ever thought about doing this have you thought about it? Like, well, yeah, we've thought about it. And I wanted to highlight that we have members who have done this stuff. And then, you know, Paul brings Jeff, which we're so glad to have you, Jeff, to say like, well, no, we've, we've got connections to the organization who do this for a living. And so, yeah, this has been, you know, talked about for many, many years. And there's a reason that no one's done it in the decades before. I mean, there were some kind of sensationalized efforts, like there was Robert W. Morgan in the Pacific Northwest, and he had this tranquilizer gun. And, you know, they were, he had a lot of funding and, you know, they had a film crew. And so it was, it was more sensationalism than it was an actual scientific effort to tranquilize and recover, you know, a Sasquatch uh, in the Northwest, but no one's ever really tried it. And that's, that's for a good reason. It's not because no one's ever thought of it. <laughs> There's a good reason people have thought of it and it's, it, it died in the thought form uh, before it had to be tried in the field. There's also another aspect to this. It's like, we haven't even discussed what are we going to do? Let's say everything, all the stars aligned and everything works out perfectly. We get a perfect shot. We trank the animal. He goes 50 yards and drops. 
which we know is not going to happen, but let's say it does. When we get a team on this animal, let's say we've got seven to 10 minutes on the ground with this animal. What do we do then? What's the most we can, what, what's the maximal amount of data we can pull from that specimen? Exactly. That's a great point because you might get photos and video and maybe draw some blood, but you're, you're not going to get a diagnostic portion that can be uh, quantitatively studied. Yeah, we don't know what's in its stomach. We don't know what it, what it eats. We don't, we don't have uh, a skeletal structure. We, don't have, we can't get x-rays. There's so many things that we can't glean from just an animal, like essentially, you know, sleeping on the ground for five minutes. And, and then there's the question of even with the video and, and, and photo documentation of that process, you know, somebody's going to come out and say, well, that's, that could easily be faked in, in today's day and age. And so science absolutely requires a specimen, period. And no amount of, you know, uh, blood samples and DNA samples and things of that nature. I don't, I just don't think that it's, it's not practical. And the end result, it would not be, would not be as uh, fruitful as if we actually obtained a dead physical specimen on the ground. Absolutely. Well, I think another thing we could talk about since we're all on the call is that some of those inquiries also include the caveat that we could we could obtain the thing like, you know, King Kong, like we could bring it back and keep it somewhere. You know, it's so I, I Paul and I were joking off the air about, you know, like, well, first of all, how do you get it? Like, what do you put it in a cattle trailer? And second of all, what are you going to learn from one in, in captivity other than what it looks like when it's like supremely bummed out? You know, <laughs> because it's just going to be sitting there. You're not going to observe behavior. So, so Jeff, you, you think there's any uh, cattle trailers or horse trailers out there that are strong enough to hold that thousand pound male wood ape when it wakes up and it wants out? Well, you ain't using my cattle trailer. I promise you that. Uh, I, I just, the idea of, of taking something as magnificent as that and, and putting it in a cage, I think is worse than than collecting it as a specimen. Are we going to feed it? Are we going to are we going to put out cans of Alpo and bags of Old Roy and just hope that he eats dog food? <laughs> There's a chance that we could actually be torturing this animal if we somehow were able to capture it and contain it in some sort of an enclosure, and it's probably going to get sick and die anyway. So that's what I was thinking. Yeah, you, you totally missed the point of of a humane, you know, uh, avoiding the cost of actually hurting and killing an animal. Versus you're actually torturing it and making it suffer for a week or more on end and then it dies anyway. I mean, what to what end is that? I've absolutely enjoyed this conversation with you guys. I hope that our audience has learned a great deal about the obstacles and troubles and trials and tribulations that come along with trying to tranquilize a large animal like that. So thanks so much. Travis and Paul for being here. And Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I, I do hope you'll consider joining the organization here in the future. We'd love to have you on board. Expect my application very soon. Absolutely. Well, it's gonna, you're going to have to let us use that cattle trailer if we catch one. Okay. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> That's the caveat. So you, you heard it, boys. He said it. it's on the record. <laughs> I hope you don't like your trailer because it's not even going to survive the road. I, I do need a new one, I guess, anyway. So. It even gets down there in the valley. <laughs> It'll be at its permanent resting place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daryl, what do you think about that roundtable discussion and uh, hearing Travis and Paul and Jeff's stories about tranquilizing and trying to capture animals? That that inspire you to try to do the same with a wood ape? <laughs> you know what? I mean, uh, from my standpoint, it's it's not... There's not a lot of information there that I have not already heard 
are uh, at least discussed at some point with other individuals in the organization and outside the organization. I've never, I've never been one to uh, to put a whole lot of stock in in uh, in the tranquilization route uh, for all the reasons that you just heard. It doesn't sound like it would be a very fun or a rewarding endeavor in the least, not for the animal and certainly not for uh, any of us who are we to try to engage in that. So hopefully those discussions will shed some light for the listeners who are interested in pursuing those lines of thought, illuminating some of the dangers, some of the obstacles, again, for not only the animals, but for the, the researchers involved. And hopefully it's clarified a bit of why we take the stance that we do and why we've chosen the path to discovery that we have chosen. Well, it's I mean, it was a discussion based in reason. But there will be those who will remain entrenched, um, and it doesn't matter how much reason we put forth, uh, they'll cling to it, and they'll continue to, uh, to hold that out as a possible alternative. Agreed. Well, again, like we talked about in the introduction, this will make for a much easier answer. As those inquiries come in in the future, I can just cut and paste the link to this episode and send them that, and, and hopefully they'll have a couple of hours to spare to listen to it, so... So for those of you who have taken the time to listen to this episode, we greatly appreciate it and appreciate the continued support. And we hope that you've had a good year despite all of the circumstances. And uh, here's to a much better 2021.